be with you all this Sunday morning. I'm looking forward to bringing God's word for us. We are in missions month right now. Um, why do we have a missions month? Why do we put up flags? Why does our church put forth funds to support several families, uh, spending money to operate our own missions base in Panama? And even why do we support uh, Mosaic Baptist Church? Why do we do that? Why do we go on missions trips? In this day and age that we live in, we have to remember this important truth uh, by a pastor named John Piper has stated in his sermon, and I'm going to elaborate later. Missions exist because the worship of God doesn't. Missions exist because the worship of God doesn't. Missions exist because people do not worship God at all in their lives. Uh, Several, multiple, multiple people do not worship God at all. And it's important for us to grasp this truth because if people don't trust Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're going to spend eternity separated from God. They will live their lives currently without value, without meaning or purpose. So we do Missions Month. And specifically, we think of global missions during this time because we want people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we recognize that sin is what separates them from God. And so today, we are going to look how we can be a light for the nation, specifically in Isaiah chapter 41. Let's Go ahead, Isaiah chapter 41, and we will begin in verse 21. This is what the word of the Lord says. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay." who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to you, Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor. But when I ask, who, when I ask, gives an answer? Behold, They are all delusional. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon them. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says 
God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to another, give to no other, nor my praise carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kadar inhabitants, the inhabitants of Selah sings for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Let's pray. Father, we come today during this missions month, Lord, and we just are asking you that you would just open our eyes to see all the needs that are around us, Lord. People are desperately in need of a Savior with all the struggles and trials that the world is currently going through with this pandemic that is hitting us, with the wildfires, Lord, with the political upheaval and the racial uh, upheaval that is also going on, Lord, we need you. We need to turn to you in this time. And people ultimately need to turn not to man, but to a Savior who has come to right the wrongs. In your precious name, amen. Jesus is bringing light to the nations, and he's bringing people from delusion to praise. You see, the book of Isaiah is divided into two sections. Chapter 1 through 39 warns the stubbornly rebellious people of the judgment that is to come because of their idolatrous living. Israel cannot keep on going rebelling against God by chasing after false gods. They cannot continue with their idolatry and their acts of injustice. And so what Isaiah predicts is that the Assyrians and the Babylonians are going to come and conquer the Israelites and the Israelite kingdom will come crashing down. In Isaiah chapter 39, he predicted that Israel's kingdom would be struck down, and it was. You can read 2 Kings 24 and 25, and they are sent into exile. The next half of the book of Isaiah, um, and specifically we're going to look at Isaiah 40 and 41 and 42, but in chapters 40 through 48, they take place about 100 years later, and this is a message of hope that is being announced to the people who are in exile. God is going to deliver them from their captivity. They have experienced and will experience God's justice and mercy in this time. The hope of God is that his servant is going to share his message of justice and peace for all the nations. And then the Israelites in turn, when they receive this great message, will go on and deliver it to other people as well. The truth that we must grasp for this time in this morning is that the main problem that Israel was facing was not a physical captivity, but a spiritual captivity. 
Their main problem wasn't being prisoners of, of a political kingdom, but being prisoners of a spiritual kingdom. You see, the justice that God talks about in chapters 40 and 41 and 42, it's supposed to be declared to the whole world. But they are hesitant to hear this message because they're exiles and they feel like God has forgotten about them. The Babylonian gods in their eyes have defeated Yahweh. And so it doesn't seem like God is all powerful. But then we come to chapter 41 and what we see is God right here in this scene is setting forth a case, as it says in verse 21. You see, he wants them to prove who really rules, who is in charge, who has the power, who knows the future, what is going to happen. And so we see this. He says in verse 21, set forth your case as the Lord, bring your proofs as the king of Jacob. Let them bring, that is the idols, and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. He wants the idols to proclaim what is going to happen. And he's renewing the challenge to the people who's in control of you. He's commanding the idols to prove their reality, to prove their existence, to prove that they have value and worth. And honestly, it is an unfair challenge because the idols are not powerful than God. And he talks a lot about idols. And you may be thinking, what does idolatry have to do with modern age? Is it really relevant to us? When we think of idols in our day and age, typically maybe we'll see an idol statue of Buddha in a um, restaurant. Is that what God is talking about? No, idolatry has more to do with the heart. Uh, Specifically, Ezekiel chapter 14, it'll be on the screen, says this. Verse 1, then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me. Verse 3, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block and their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Verse 4, therefore speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord, anyone in the house of Israel who, again, takes idols into his heart, and sets a stumbling block of iniquity before his face. Again, in verse 5, uh, we see that the Lord will answer him as he's come with a multitude of idols, that I may lay hold of their hearts, the house of Israel. We see this again in verse 6. Therefore, says the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols. Turn away from your faces from all the abominations. And again, in verse 7, For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who separates himself from me, taking idols into his heart. You see, idolatry is a heart issue. Idolatry is what is plaguing the nation of Israel and what got them into the place that they had to be sent into captivity because they rebelled against God. And again, we might think idolatry is just a back then issue, but let me explain to you in my uh, great state of Missouri, in Kansas City, how how idolatry is rampant. Imagine for, for me for a moment if you came from a foreign country and you came for a weekend to my hometown of Kansas City, Missouri. You come on a Sunday morning and you come to a service and you observe many people maybe even most, slowly rising up in their homes to go to a building they call church. 
they're groggily approaching the day with some sort of service that's going to take place. Whatever happens as a service doesn't really have that much sway in the people because they're going about their day pretty slowly. You'll watch them filing in kind of mouthless and what seems like lifeless. They're singing songs and there's not much emotion and they're expressionless in there. And you'll see people passively listening to someone talk to them for a certain people of time. You notice that the people start getting fidgety when they go over time and uneasy at this service as the time ends. But when you walk out, you see that there's expectation in their face in Kansas City, Missouri. There's some laughter and there's some smile because there is another ceremony that's going to take place later in the day. They, they smile and recount about how this service is going to take place. And the crazy thing is this service only takes place eight to nine times a year through September uh, through December. In fact, the rest of the week, all the people are doing is talking about this upcoming ceremony on Sunday. You see, the people who were even at the service who were silent during that time are enthusiastic about what is going to come. And so your curiosity is piqued at this upcoming service that they're going to People rise up at 5 a.m. and wake up and they're dressed in all different sorts of outfits and they love to wear on these type of days. They drive out of their cities some hours, some even three, four hours away to go to the pre-service on the hallowed grounds. And you'll see that people are eating and drinking and laughing and playing with people who aren't even their family members with complete strangers, and you've never seen community like this before. When the time comes, tens of thousands of people enter this shrine, as you would say, and they're raising their voices loud, and they're all assembling, watching young adults in their 20s and 30s run around playing a game. And as the game begins, you see shouts and chants and singing and virtually grown men are brought to tears watching the game going on and losing their voice. People don't look at their watches during this ceremony. In fact, when it goes into overtime, people are excited about what's going to happen. They're so excited and they never want this ceremony to end. When the ceremony does end, and their team has won, there's celebration, and the party isn't over. There is an after party for this service that takes place. And what's interesting is it's not just at this temple place that they would call. People in their homes who have screens that could fill, actually be like movie theaters are gathered together with family members and complete strangers and at different restaurants watching what is going on. And they're excited and shouting with strangers that they don't know, jumping and high-fiving. You see, if you were a visitor from another country and you came to the city, Kansas City, during the fall, and someone would ask you, what is the religion that's most important to this people? What is the thing that excites them the most? What is the thing that they worship? You wouldn't say that church service that goes on. Their actions, their attitudes, their mannerisms don't demonstrate it. 
you would say the game that went on is their God. You see, that is the problem, though. We don't recognize when we read the word of God. Is Idolatry is active and alive today in so many different forms. I've talked to you about the Kansas City Chiefs and how people go crazy, but idolatry is everywhere in our society. See, idolatry, its meaning is this. It is anything that in life that functions in the place of God. Whatever the heart turns to for ultimate satisfaction or security. My home state of Kansas City, people literally crying because the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. I was excited, but they were like, my life is finally made. I can now go on in life, and I'm happy. This has become their worship. But again, brothers and sisters in Christ, there are other things in life that we put in the place of God that becomes our worship. Isaiah spends so much time in his whole book talking about the interaction of the idols and how it has brought down the people. Forty chapters he's spending just saying that judgment is coming upon you because you have turned your idols, your foreign gods, into the ultimate thing. You see, the world needs a light because idolatry is at the root of blinding us all. It's anything other than God that we find our peace, our self-image, our contentment, our sense of control and acceptability. But it's not just in Isaiah that talks about idolatry. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 1 John 5, 21, Little children, keep yourself from idols. Idols aren't just figurines. It's things we put before God. And Galatians 4, 8, and 9, he says, Paul says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Idolatry begins at unbelief. And the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 1, that they're suppressing the truth of God in their conscience, in the creation. Idolatry is anything in life that functions in the place of God. And you see, idolatry is at the root of all our societal ills. Racism, sexism, classism. You see, it's at the root of why we have abortion and sex trafficking. It's at the root of what's causing divorces and fatherlessness and all the injustices that are in our society. It is idolatry. Tim Keller writes, An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give that only God should get. Anything that is so essential to your life that you would lose it. Your life would feel hardly worth living without. Some people, their idols are strongly influenced by power. They're influenced by getting the approval and appreciation of others. Some people, it's emotional comforts that can come from this. You see, idolatry can take many different forms. And this is why missions exist. Missions exist because our world has been constrained by idols, 
by political idols and economic idols and national idols, performance, entertainment idols. We've put family members before God, our personal satisfaction. Missions exist because the world is not worshiping the Savior. The goal of missions is to stop people from worshiping these false idols and find their satisfaction in God alone. Missions is saying this, Christ needs to be your life. You cannot live a life without him. You see, we, when we worship, we show honor and praise and adoration and allegiance to someone or something. And so we want people to show that honor and praise to a true and living God. And later in this passage, you're going to see that the Israelites and us need to be a light for the nations because people need to be taken away from their idols that have brought darkness into this life. And so in this court case, in Isaiah chapter 21, where God is just basically telling the idols, prove your existence, prove your worth, prove your value, two times the word behold is used, and it says this, verse 24, Behold, to the idols, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. And verse 29, behold, they are all delusional. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wing. Idols are worthless. They have no value. The Hebrew word behind uh, delusion is used twice in the Bible. Again, it's used in Zechariah chapter 10, verse 2, and I'll read that for you. It says this, For the household gods, the idols, are utter nonsense or delusional. And the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people, here's what happens because people follow idols. Here's what's happening in our world, why we need to send out missionaries and why we need to be on mission. Because people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. People are wandering in life without a shepherd, without someone to guide them, without someone to be there for them, to give them the will for their life. Author Steve Hope talks about this in his book, and he explains idolatry in this way. If you want to hear it from a fresh way, he says this, First, the reason why people chase after idols is this. They thirst. It starts with a problem. We're all born thirsty. We are born with a desire for something more. And that desire is for God, but mankind doesn't recognize this. Something more satisfying than what we have. Something can fill the nagging void in our hearts. And we are thirsty for paradise. We are thirsty for a king, but there's bad news. There's nothing to drink on this earth. Nothing around us can quench our thirst. Our world is not paradise. We have jobs that are stressful and taxing and unfulfilling. We have relationships that are quarrelsome. We get cancer and broken bones and other illnesses. We have poverty and genocide and starvations. We have terrorism. We have all kinds of plights. You see, the society we live in is not worthwhile at all. And so how do we do? What do we do in response? Well, we sip salt water. We think that we can find paradise on this earth. And you would think that we would recognize that salt water makes us want to revulse and puke out, and yet people keep going back to the source, to these idols, thinking that they're going to quench their thirst. But it doesn't happen. They don't find joy 
They don't find comfort or excitement. It doesn't remove their fears or tears or worries or shame. They think they're going to find paradise, but they don't find it. They don't find it in their marriages. They don't find it in their kids or their spouses. They don't find it in their careers. They don't find it, and they're hungover being in all these negative relationships and negative circumstances, and it's debilitating. So is there any hope for those that respond and keep chasing after the world for contentment and peace and meaning? Well, that what's brings us to chapter 42, because there is. And this is God's response. Another behold, he says this, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Here is the truth that we have all been longing for. There is a servant who is going to bring justice to the nations. There is a servant who is going to set us free from the prison of sin. You see, this is the first of the four servant songs. And these servant songs, specifically Isaiah, are talking about Jesus Christ. He has come to quench our souls. He's not an abomination. He's a delight. He's not delusional. He has come to bring us peace. And the key word we see in chapter 42 through verse 1 and 4 is the word justice. It appears three times. What does Isaiah mean by this word justice? Is it just legal correctness or is it something more? Remember, he told us that idols are delusional. They are reckless. They are worthless. Justice has more to do than something political. You see, the word justice and righteous are typically interchangeable in the Old Testament. And what God had in mind here is that human society would be brought back to the way it was supposed to be. A just world is a human society that is based off God and not bowing down to corrupting idols. When we see poverty and oppression, when we see racism and illiteracy and abuse. Those are all injustices in the world. But it's more than moral. It's more than political. It's at a spiritual level. It's at a heart level. You see, we need a savior to save us from this. The injustices we see in Romans chapter 1 verse 29 go on like this. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. They were full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. But this is not how the story ends. That's all injustice. Verse 1 again, Behold my servant, the servant whom the Lord has chosen, who the Lord delights in, he has put his spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. You see, that passage, Isaiah chapter 42, uh, verse 1 and 4, is also seen with Jesus specifically referencing it in Matthew chapter 12. You see, what happens is Jesus is in the temple, and he is discussing with the Pharisees about the Sabbath. And what happens is that there is a man with a withered hand that is currently in the temple. And Jesus, wanting to demonstrate his justice, righting the wrongs, that's what justice means, to right the wrongs, 
heals this man's withered hand. This man was not expecting it at all. But the Pharisees were furious with him because why would he do something like this on the Sabbath? And Jesus recognized their anger towards him and left. And what's interesting is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 17, specifically, it says that those that followed them, followed him, he healed them all as well. He was righting the wrongs. He was being just. And you see, this is what Jesus prophesies in uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 18 and 20. He says this, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. You see, this servant is not like what they thought. They thought that the religious teachers thought they were going to get a political Messiah who is going to come with a military campaign and much fanfare. But Jesus came in gentleness and meekness. And specifically, he came to, and he wouldn't trample over the bruised reed or the smoldering wick. And that's people specifically what this passage is talking about. You see, idolatry breaks down people. Idolatry brings problems into our lives. But Jesus, when he said he would come, he would come and he would be gentle and lowly in heart. When Jesus would come, people could find acceptance in him. When Jesus would come, he said his yoke is easy and his burden would be light. When Jesus came, he was coming to deliver people from their captivity of their idolatry. He was coming to save them from themselves. And this is what we need to grasp in our society, in this day and age. That is what we need to be about primarily. We need to be about Jesus's mission to bringing a light to the nations. You see, the Pharisees in this time had it all wrong. They thought they were going to have a political Messiah who is going to go in and make changes there. But Jesus cared primarily about transforming people at the heart level. And that's what we as a church need to be about. Which leads to praise. It leads to praise because specifically Jesus has come to save those that aren't worthwhile to him at all. Verse 10 and 12 says this. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the deserts and its cities lift up their voices, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise to the coastlands. The prophet Isaiah is calling the whole world to sing and worship Jesus Christ, the great work of God trampling the idols. He wants to deliver everyone from the bondage of sin. This is why we have public services and not private services. This is why the church is not a country club that is only for the exclusive, but that we want to reach out out of our walls and reach other people because we know that the world's problem is idolatry and we want people to be delivered from this. Idols divide. 
Idols bring about hostility. Idols bring about division. But true worship of the Savior unites people from different tribes, nations, and tongues. That's the beauty of Faith Baptist Church, where you get people from all different ethnicities and ages and backgrounds who could come together and worship the Savior because he unites us all. You see, this is what we need to grasp. But we have a servant who has come to deliver us from the bondage of sin. People nowadays are talking about injustices that are going on in our society. And I won't mention those that they're talking about. But honestly, you know what I think the greatest injustice is in our society? That you can have Christians, you can have people who have been delivered from bondage, who are not willing to either pray, go, or give to missions, who are not willing to go out of their comfort zone and share the gospel with other people. How can we, how can I, who has been delivered from bondage, delivered from the shackles of sin, not want to also tell other people about the amazing truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That is an injustice, church family, that we are not speaking out and sharing the gospel with other people. You see, people are being broken down by idols in society, and you can see it in your workplaces. You can see it with your family members, and yet we have a message. And for some of us, myself included, this is a rebuke to me as well, we're too afraid to go. We're too afraid to share this message of hope. You see, we need to have this mindset. In verse 16, it says this, and Jesus said, I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, and paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do. I do not forsake them. We need to go out, church family, and we need to tell others about the amazing news of Jesus Christ. We need to pray for our missionaries as they're going out into different places in some countries where it's becoming harder and harder, specifically in some in Latin America that have not been able to physically meet in churches. We need to pray that in this time where people might be discouraged that the gospel could go out, that people wouldn't turn to idols to comfort them, but turn to the Savior. We need to give sacrificially to the mission, to the kingdom work that is there. And we need to go. Some of us need to recognize that the greatest thing for us to do is to go. To go and share the gospel. To go out into the world and to go out even in our neighborhoods and tell people about a Savior who loves them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this day that you have given us. I thank you so much for the servant. For you, Jesus, our King and our Lord and our Master, who has come to deliver us from the bondage of sin. Lord, I pray for us as a church family during this missions month that we would desire to be a light for the nations. Specifically, you say in chapter 42, verse 1, that you have put your spirit upon Jesus and that same spirit you have given to us. So though we may be afraid of what may happen when we go and proclaim your name, We have your spirit within us. So it's not about our strength or our ability or our knowledge. It's about what you do through us. So may we with passion go and proclaim 
that Jesus is king. In your precious name, amen.